0: Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Fintech is shaking the financial sector in Latin America, not only by boosting competition, but also by bringing new technologies and services to millions that had previously been ignored. Financial transactions that used to take days can now be completed instantaneously. Digital wallets are becoming ubiquitous and micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises, sectors that had been traditionally underserved by the banking sector, are now being financed. To speak with me about how bank evolved from just an initiative to kill fat fees and terrible service in Brazil into the world's largest digital bank, that it is my pleasure to welcome David Vélez, co-founder and CEO of Nubank. David, thank you so much for being in Mexico Matters. I am really honored to have you on the show today. I mean Nubank has succeeded like very few others have. It is in fact the world's largest digital bank and despite all the hype around Latin America's fintech ecosystem, there are not many examples of profitability. And Nubank, which started only 10 years ago, has a market cap of 40 billion, which is I don't know, half of Citibank, more than 90 Million customers and revenues of about 8 billion. I mean, that is impressive, David. Please, you're not only a celebrity, you're a role model. Please tell us your story.
1: Thank you, Mariana. Well, I always get a bit antsy when I hear that we've achieved a lot of success because we have a lot of work ahead, and we're still in the early days. So, so a lot of work ahead. But answering your question, we began about ten years ago, as you said. I came from the from the investing side, having worked at General Atlantic and Sequoia Capital, but always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Had moved to Brazil in first in two thousand eight and then in two thousand twelve. When I left Sequoia spent a lot of time thinking about what markets to focus on. And financial services seemed to me the most interesting of all, because when I asked the question, what are the biggest companies in Latin America and what are the biggest markets? Banks always came on top. Five of the 10 biggest companies in the Bovespa in Brazil are banks, the biggest companies in Mexico are banks, biggest company in Colombia are banks. So this is as big as it gets in terms of market size, which also means influence and impact. And at the same time, a couple of things were happening. I had a one of those life-changing experiences as I tried to open a bank account myself in Sao Paulo, which was really horrendous. I went into a banking branch in an afternoon in Sao Paulo and was trapped in the branch. Alarms started sounding in a bulletproof door. Guards came out with guns to look at me as if I was trying to rob the bank like a criminal. Had to oh, wait wow. 50 minutes to talk to a, a manager who clearly didn't really want to be helping me and threw paperwork on me and said, here you go. As if I had to ask, beg as a favor for a bank account, not him begging me as a customer, but me begging him yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> to let me open a
1: bank account. It took me five months and several times to go to the branch. And anyway, at, at the end of this process, I was It was clear to me that it was something wrong with with this industry. How it was possible that customers had to go through this experience. And I knew this was one of the most profitable banking industries in the world, was charging some of the highest interest rates and fees in the world. And consumers were being served so poorly. So that, that just didn't add up. And the other thing that was happening at that point was very fast penetration of smartphones in the market. Brazil was quickly becoming what people were calling the social media capital of the universe. Brazil technology adoption was very high. Very quickly, Brazilians became top five in Instagram, in YouTube, in WhatsApp, in Facebook. So when you combine those three elements, on one end, a large industry of incumbents, very powerful oligopoly that charged a lot of money, that then restricted access, didn't treat customers well, and then you combine what was happening in technology that created a very interesting window of opportunity to reimagine banking as a digitally native, mobile-first bank. And so that's what I got excited to do in 2012, and that's where I got focused on, on doing by starting new Bank.
0: David, in terms of regulation, what did the government in Brazil do well that allowed for this technology penetration to grow as much as it did in Brazil? But, you know, we're talking back in the 90s.
1: Basically, regulators everywhere in the world, especially banking regulators, care about two things, mainly. The first one is the soundness of the system, the stability of the system. And the second one is competition. Historically, the regulator in Brazil worried more about a stability and soundness, especially when Brazil came after a number of different banking crises in the 80s, in the 90s, when there was hyperinflation in a number of different banks. When bust, there was a lot of focus on the stability of the system, and that also drove to a large banking concentration to the point where a lot of the banks, a lot of the big banks bought a bunch of small banks. And by 2012, when I was looking at this industry, you had effectively five banks that own 85% of the market. Very sound industry, very stable industry, but a very concentrated industry. And if you have five banks that own 85% of the system, then you have then suddenly a concentration problem. You have, it's too concentrated. It's an oligopoly. And when you have an oligopoly, you are charging consumers much more than they should be paying. You're not really, nobody's really competing. And ultimately, banks are charging more than what they should and leaving a lot of people outside the system. You had about 60 million people completely unbanked in Brazil. So around that time, the, the credit to a regulator was seeing the concentration of banking as a problem and now starting to think, well, how can we now start impulsing more competition? And they saw technology and smartphones as part of the answer of how to increase competition. So when they saw people like us beginning to use smartphones as a way to compete, they saw it with generally good eyes. They saw it as, a, as something to be supported. Because we went to the bank, central bank and said, hey, we're going to bring more competition. More competition is going to mean lower interest rate. is going to mean less fees, happier consumers, and more access to the unbanked population. And They said, well, that's good, but there is a reg- banking regulation that you need to abide by as long as you respect the existing regulation, then go all in. So that was good willingness, although it wasn't necessarily easy for us. But the other thing that happened at the same time was the regulators started realizing that in technology, there were a number of opportunities to bring more efficiency to the system. And so they came up with, eventually after a few years, they came up with the real-time payment system in Brazil called PIX, which was inspired on India UPI. And that has really been completely transformational for the system. And then now they've been really pushing an, a very transformational open banking regulation that is really going to enable even more competition. And that has been coming from the regulator directly in a way that has been very modern, very pro-competition, and always with a view around how can we bring more players into the system safely and bring more alternatives to consumers.
0: Is that the reason, that bid or why is it that Mexico lags behind not only Brazil, but many other countries when it comes to the fintech or the digital revolution?
1: My guess is a couple of things. The first one is there's still too much focus on stability versus competition in Mexico. Even though in reality, when you look at the numbers in Mexico, I think especially financial inclusion should be a bigger sense of urgency. Brazil already had 35% credit card penetration. Mexico today only has something like around 11% credit card penetration. So only about 40% of Mexicans have access to bank accounts. So you you still see a country with 60% of the population is outside the banking system. And for 88% of the population cannot get access to a simple credit product like a credit card. So financial inclusion should carry a much higher priority, in my view, than anything around stability. Stability is taken care of there are international regulations. You have Basel I, Basel II. Mexican banks are really stable. In fact, over the past 12 months, when you see U.S. banks going bankrupt and going busted like Silicon Valley Bank because of fast increasing interest rates, you did not see that in Mexico. In fact, you did not see that anywhere else in Latin America. They're very profitable, actually. Yeah, the banking system in the U.S. was turned out to be much more vulnerable than the banking system in Latin America. So there is not an instability issue. And then, when you look at the attempts of the regulator in Mexico to now use more technology to bring that competition, our view has been that while there's been good efforts like uh, Codi, for example, Codi is the equivalent of Pix in Brazil or UPi in India, yeah. or some kind of open finance, the regulator has been a bit shy with the big banks. The regulator hasn't really gone all the way to what Brazil did, which was make some of these systems mandatory. And that's really the clear difference. If you make these systems voluntary adoption, they're not going to succeed because big banks have no incentive, really, to enable new technologies. They are very powerful. They make a lot of money. Why would I ever want to adopt a new technology that a regular tells me to adopt? If generally,
0: even more so, if I have someone like new that is going to compete with me, right? <laughs>
1: exactly. There is only downside if I'm an incumbent. There is only downside exactly. in adopting to make this infrastructure is successful, you have to make it mandatory. And that's what the regulator in Brazil did. And in India, they did. It's mandatory to adopt this payment system infrastructure. It's mandatory to adopt open finance. And once that is mandatory, then really everybody has to participate and that's what makes it successful. And by the way, if you look at, if you talk to incumbent banks today in Brazil, they're very happy that we're obliged to use it. Now they're actually realizing that they're saving a ton of money by removing cash. It it seemed like a threat initially, now they realize that this is actually a facilitator of their business and they're happy they've enabled some of these systems at the beginning but initially there is very little incentive for somebody to really adopt fully
0: and i'm sure it took a lot of investments from their parts to live up to it right
1: it took a lot of investment uh, yes but not as much as i would expect especially when you now compare it with how much in savings they are receiving if you look at in bank in brazil for example Transporting cash is very expensive for banks. Having physical cash in, in branches where you need to have police, where you need to have people taking care of the cash, that's very expensive. So now that cash is going away and the economy is being digitalized, they're saving all of those costs. And that ends up being a huge, positive NPV type of project that they engaged themselves a few years ago.
0: David, as you mentioned, in the Mexican economy is certainly not digital, right? Only 12% or 11% of the spending in the country is done by debit or credit cards. How can we make credit cards more popular in Mexico? You're leading this effort, as well as with other technology companies. How do you see that?:
1: The biggest thing I think the regulator could do is not even credit card even, even be, go beyond us. It really is a, a well-functioning real-time payment system. Like the moment that CDI starts working, the same way as Pix works or UPI works in India, that's transformational, because that's the moment where every single person in the economy is going to need an app to pay for stuff digitally. And was going to need effectively an app with a savings account. The first minute you are now banking the entire population. This is what happened in India with the demonetization. They open up about 500 million bank accounts. The moment you are in the banking system now and you have money, there's in your salary, savings. Then not only you start participating actively of the formal economy, you leave the informal economy, you become the formal economy. And then you start creating a path in the online economy to start creating a credit history, which then enables people like cost, but also the banks to start really lending to people. And you start solving the big bottleneck today, which for this 88 million pe- uh, 88% of the population that are completely inside the banking system that don't have access to credit card, part of the difficulty is there is no data to which to use to underwrite. It's very risky to underwrite. We are addressing and we are doing a good job by using non-traditional credit information, by being willing to take more risk, by starting with customers with lower credit limits and allowing them to pay on time and using a lot of behavioral information. It's a, it's a some methodology that has worked. It worked well in Brazil, it's going to take years because it, it doesn't happen overnight. Ultimately, I think we're going to be successful in, in creating a large consumer base of customers in Mexico that never had access to credit, and that's one way that works. But it would be much faster and it would be much more transformational If we could do this on top of a real-time payment system like the one in Brazil had done with
0: PIX. Your model worked incredibly well in Brazil. In only a few years, you managed to go from literally nothing to 84 million customers, or more than 51% of the market. You recently decided to go regional and expand into Mexico and Colombia. As you said, given the fact that 85% of transactions in Mexico are still conducted in cash and that the new fintech law has pushed new and other technology companies to ask for a traditional banking license, what would it take for Mexico to be as important a market for NU as Brazil?
1: I think it has almost all the ingredients to be uh, as big as Brazil for us. It's a smaller population, but it's a higher income per capita than Brazil. And then the opportunity to create a whole new market, right? Again, 88% of people don't have access to credit card would mean that we can build, if we if we learn how to underwrite, if we crack the underwriting for the people that don't have access to credit today, it's going to be a much differentiated strategy than what we did in Brazil. There could be potential for a bigger moat, for a bigger differentiating position for us in Mexico than what we had in Brazil. Now I think the the fact that is such a we're dealing with such a big unbanked population is both a challenge as well as an opportunity it's a challenge because we're gonna have mm-hmm. to really be very thoughtful around how we grow our credit portfolio It's gonna take we're gonna have to be slower we gotta be more patient we gotta use more non-traditional data we have to be smarter because there is less data in this system and there is today there is no benefit there are no infrastructure that enables this growth faster like Open banking or PICS in Brazil. If this infrastructure were to be live in a few years, and we think that ultimately it will, like I, I cannot imagine a Mexico where five years from now or 10 years from now, people are still dealing 88% of, of payments are still cash. Like that, that's just mm-hmm. hard to imagine. It would be a massive failure if the entire world goes digital and somehow Mexico still has, is still managing mm-hmm. yeah. cash. So I think the system, the regulators, are going to figure it out. And, and that's the future. That's where the puck is going. And I think in that world of digital infrastructure, we're able to grow faster and we're able to retake really advantage of that to provide access to financial services to more and more people.
0: New in Mexico is being very aggressive. You're offering a 15% yield to depositors on their saving accounts. That is well over interbank rates. This obviously comes at a cost, you know, sort of in addition to sort of playing the long run. What is your strategy with this, David?
1: A couple of things. First, we have, even at this yield, we have good unit economics. It's a profitable product uh, that we have because we built, we started growing with a credit card portfolio that has an average 60 to 80% APR. So if we need to find ourselves at 15%, we're operating day one with a very healthy net interest margin. The first thing to consider is that the unit economics and the business model works because we started with credit. There are other fintechs that did not start with credit. And so for them to offer these yields is completely uneconomical. economical They don't have really have a business model to be able to offer oh, this type is- of rates. We started with credit. We now have close to over a 5 million customers. So it's profitable. It's a good business model. The number one. Number two, to fund the credit card portfolio, we were already paying banks a much higher debt cost than 15% a year. Because we don't have retail deposits. And so the decisions to pay 15 is is basically saying, instead of paying these big banks much higher cost of funding, I'd rather pay our customers 15% and enable our customers to receive that and have a happier customer. So it's a win-win. I'm actually decreasing our cost of funding by paying 15%. And I'm paying that interest to our customers, which now start generating a positive flywheel because customers get that yield. They're happy. Now suddenly they want to apply for a credit card. They want to get a higher income credit limit, and they start using more products of NoBank. And so this acts as a way for us to bring customers into our platform, and then eventually cross sale which means an even more economical decision, even more of an NPV positive decision. As I as I get to cross sale
0: are you breaking even yet, or on a PNL
1: basis we're not breaking even. No, on a unit economics basis, yes, we have very attractive unit economics. But on a PNL basis, no. We are still in the early days, and we are happy right. to invest money and be neg and have a negative PL given the significant growth opportunity that we have ahead.
0: Who are your main competitors? Is it the traditional banks, or is it other tech companies who are also fighting for the same customers?
1: The competitors are the, the traditional banks because the traditional banks still about five, six banks in Mexico own something like seventy to seventy-five percent of all the assets. 70, 70%, 75% 70%, of all the deposits, of all the credit, all the insurance, all the investments, all the mortgages. That's where the existing market begins and exists. All the other fintechs, all the other techs are tiny, are very, very, very small compared to the big banks. Mm-hmm. So that's competitor one, competitor two is cash. Again, it's this entire universe of customers that today don't have access to any single type of product. It's a blue ocean. We're going to be creating a whole new market or expanding the size of the market that today even the big banks don't really serve. So that ultimately, that, that's actually really the big competitor is, is cash and the informal economy that has most Mexicans today without access to formal banking products.
0: What would be the number one regulation if you could ask the Mexican government to give you something that will incentivize the Mexican consumer to go into the banking system?
1: I think is a, a well-functioning real-time payment system infrastructure, which means fixing CODI, and partly of that is making it mandatory adoption really for everybody. That that would that would be a catalyst,
0: right? So when you you speak about CODI, and you know you said you know sort of the the difference with Brazil was in Brazil was mandatory. In addition to making it mandatory in Mexico, what are, is there anything else that you would like to see?
1: Yes. I mean, I think within that CAUTI regulation, there is a number of different things that I think can be fixed. Like the requirements around onboarding are pretty long. It requires too much information from people. A lot of the times people just don't have that information available. So there is a lot of friction. The UX, one of the things that Brazil Central Bank did very well is that they mandated specific frameworks around the user interface that banks had to offer consumers to use. Because if you think about it, okay, fine, it's mandatory. If I'm a big bank, fine, it's mandatory. I'm going to adopt it. But I don't really want it to be successful. So I'm just going to make it very confusing. And I'm just going to hide it in my eye so that nobody use it. So regulator in Brazil was... Smarter than that, they actually mandated certain user interface frameworks to make sure that it was front and center, to make sure that it was wow. simple. It has to be free, peer to peer. Can nobody can can charge any money. So it has to be free. And so they set up all the basically did an entire checklist to make sure that the product was going to be successful, that consumers were going to adopt it, mm-hmm. and that effectively broke any incentive from the main incumbents to, to make it. Unsuccessful, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there is a checklist of that. Yeah. I think that has to also be taken into account to make Cody successful ultimately.
0: Yeah. Not unimportant. David, you were among the few Latin American entrepreneurs that have had a debut on Wall Street. Nubank raised $2.6 in your IPO. Tell us about such an important milestone and how has your journey been so far as a public company?
1: Yes, no. So it was a decision we thought uh, long and through because obviously going public can bring some risk around your ability to continue investing for the long run, being too much of a hostage to investors around optimizing the next quarter. Having your stock being traded means volatility, which means potential distraction. So we, we thought a lot of all the downsides of being a public company. I think ultimately we concluded we are in a business that is very capital intensive. Banking requires a lot of capital and they will, and the best source of capital is the public market. And so we were going to have to do it whether we like it or not. So we got started getting prepared and we went public end of 21. In hindsight, it was one of the best decisions we've ever made as a company, especially the timing, because two weeks after of our IPO, the world completely changed. Interest rates everywhere went through the roof. And the IPO market got completely shut down and continues to be shut down almost two years after. So our timing was almost perfect. uh, Impeccable. We were able to add those $2.6 billion to our balance sheet. And as we went into a crisis, we were very well capitalized. It gives us a lot of strength and it gives us time to then being able to break even as a business. And now we'll be able to show significant profitability in our core markets. And we haven't really had to use that money in the holding company. So, in a way, it, it allows us to continue operating in the middle of a crisis, continue accelerating and take advantage of the market. And we've more than tripled in size since the IPO in only two years. And we mm-hmm. went from burning about $300 million in a year to, you know, our last quarter generating $300 million in a quarter. So it was, mm-hmm. a, it, and, and the good, and the other kind of side note is, We haven't actually felt that much need to deviate from the way we run the business. We've always run the business thinking about the business in the long run, seeing this as a marathon, not as a sprint. And while there are investors, investors one day will tell you go right and another one will tell you go left and another one will tell you go up Mm -hmm. and another one will tell you go down. We just listen to everybody and and ultimately decide with our partners, with our board, where should we go? And, And those are data points that we take into account, but we own the decisioning. And we don't need to be hostage to the ups and downs of the market or the inevitable investors that come in with much shorter time frame that we operate. So we felt that we've been able to maintain to, to maintain the way we run the business, and maybe even I think we're running the business even better than when we are a private company because I think the public market does give you does force a, a much more discipline. You can't hide, which is good, which means operational excellence, which means. You're in control of your destiny and and you have a lot of stakeholders, investors that are very demanding. That makes you just operate at a higher level of competence.
0: Certainly capital is not a challenge for you, thanks to the IPO. What about talent? How many people do you have?
1: We have about 7,000 employees. And yeah, I think it's a great question. Talent is our bottleneck. It's not our bottleneck is not capital or bottleneck. It's not market opportunity. It's, It's talent especially being in a Latin American company, there are specific certain talent that you just don't find in the region. You have to go to the US, you have to go to Europe when there are certain skill sets and scale knowledge that you wanna access. That meant for us that we almost had to go international from a talent perspective since the very beginning. We have a engineering center in Berlin. We bought a a company in North Carolina where we have a large presence. So we we had to see ourselves as a recruiting global talent given the talent bottlenecks that we find in Latin America at this point.
0: You and many other entrepreneurs in the region have one common theme. I mean, you have really been motivated to improve the lives of millions that Had previously been ignored either by the banks or the retailers or the government, you name it, right? But entrepreneurs like you are literally improving the lives of millions. I mean, you're trying to bank the unbanked. Others are helping people save hours and hours in shopping or buying a car. And you're all competing against incumbency. What does it take today to succeed as an entrepreneur in the region?
1: The first thing I would say is do becoming an entrepreneur for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. I think the right reasons is especially what you just mentioned, is you want to see an opportunity to create impact in millions of people. And you also want to prove yourself. You want to go through the journey. You want to live an adventure. You want to test yourself. It's not easy to be an entrepreneur in Latin America. I remember a lot of the times at the beginning of the company, I used to hear from people, wow, it's very hard It's going to be really hard to start a bank from scratch in Brazil. And they almost said it as if it was a bad thing being hard. It's actually a great thing to be hard because doing something hard, doing something hard removes the competition. There is much more competition in doing something easy than in doing something hard. And being an entrepreneur in Latin America is much harder. That's what I always tell entrepreneurs in the U.S. Being an entrepreneur in the U.S. is much easier than in Latin America. That's why you should come to Latin America. So I think the first the first thing I would say is is do it for the right reasons, which is creating something impactful and and testing yourself as an entrepreneur. I think the wrong reasons is building a unicorn, making a ton of money or, or, or being in the newspapers. All of that stuff is you might fail as an entrepreneur. It's very possible. And so you're going to be very disappointed if that was your main goal. But if your main goal was the journey, then you're going to be happy no matter what, no matter where you succeed or fail as a business, you're going to, you're going to succeed because you accomplished the experience that you wanted to have. So that's the first part. The second one, I think is, is just a lot of, this is an, a region. When I look back about around the 10 years that we've been around, almost everything from a macro perspective went wrong. The photo of the macro that we've seen is, is the nightmare of an entrepreneur. We saw the worst recession in a hundred years in 2017, where the GDP of Brazil contracted 8% in one year. We saw a presidential impeachment. We saw the worst corruption scandal in the history of Brazil. We saw a pandemic, obviously, a lot of people did. We, 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 so, and, and every time you go fundraising and these bad headlines are in the news, it's very demotivating. American investors don't understand what they would ever want to be investing in Brazil or in Latin America with these headlines. But that's again the opportunity because if you're learned to execute in these choppy waters, then that's a competitive advantage. You can do something that few people can do. And so what, what does it take? It requires a lot of agility. You got to move fast very quickly. It requires a lot of sense of urgency. It requires a lot of commitment and energy and, and a lot of resilience because things almost never really happen as you expect. And again, going back to number one, that's part of the journey, that's part of the adventure. So mm. it requires a specific, I think, kind of DNA of, of wanting to be an entrepreneur in Latin America. It will be a fun ride. It will be a volatile ride, but it's definitely the adventure of a lifetime, I, w- I, I would say.
0: Well, we started this conversation by you telling me that you still have a lot of work ahead of you. But already you are an example of the opportunity that exists in Latin America For those that like you, David, don't want it easy. And as you said, you have gone through a lot, and it has not been easy. And it is not easy to be an entrepreneur in Latin America. But the results and the impact that you can have is really tremendous. David, congratulations for such a cool journey, and I hope to really have you on the show again. Thank you so, so much for such a fascinating conversation. Please come back.
1: Thank you, Mariana. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for the invite. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit
0: csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog